This week on The Rail Splitter, we're going to talk about music and how it relates to Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. My name is Jeremy, and with me tonight is Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, everybody. And Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, people listening to podcast? <laughs> and we are so lucky this week to have a, another special guest with us today or this week is Christian McWhorter. He is a historian at the best place in the universe, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. He's also the editor of the Abraham Lincoln Association uh, newsletter, and he is the author of the book Battle Hems, The Power and Popularity of Music During the Civil War. I hope I got your accolades correct, Christian, but thank you for joining us. How are you this evening? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for that intro and for having me on, guys. Well, that is a heck of a resume as far as Abraham Lincoln and Civil War goes, so uh, it was kind of actually fun to, uh, to list those things off. So um, we're here tonight to, uh, or we're here this week, I guess, as it is, to talk about, um, well, really kind of your work with Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, your work as a historian, and then also to talk uh, about your area of expertise, which would be uh, music specifically during the Civil War. Um, so Nick actually um, kind of reached out, so I'll turn it on, turn the mic over to Nick for a little bit to chat about um, your experience, how you ran into Christian, and um, maybe start off with the first couple questions. Yeah, um, I was down in Charleston um, at a conference where I presented um, doing some of the vet doc stuff we've talked about before on here. And then, you know, I was looking at the stuff, kind of interested in the keynote, and then I was like, oh man, and we got a Lincoln guy. So then I was stoked, and I'm like, well, I, I got to – I did bring, like, a microphone and a Taz cam, and then I'm like, well, I can't just bombard him and try to get something there. So I'm like, well, I'm going to approach him. Hopefully um, he'll be willing to come on the show. And then you had actually heard of our show. Um, am I correct with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've heard uh, a few episodes, and you've, you've had uh, some folks I know on as, as guests. So, yeah. So we must be known as the three jackasses in the Lincoln community. <laughs> or at least two of us. Are, yeah, Mary's awesome. But definitely the two jackasses who try to talk Lincoln. Uh, but no, then I talked to him and I kind of asked if he was willing to come on the show. He agreed. And then finally we were able to get a day that worked out. Um, so we're here now talking. Um, I do want to start this because this doesn't happen for Mary often. But I know you and Mary have a something in common. Christian, where did you grow up? I grew up just north of Toronto in a little town called Caledon. Wow. Well, how I'm, about that? I, I live in Canada, in Goderich, Ontario. Oh, you live in Goderich, really? Yeah. I used to, what's the um, provincial park in Goderich? We used to camp. Uh, there's Point Farms. That's it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I used to, my parents used to go to Point Farms every summer and we would, uh, yeah, camp near Goderich and so, but yeah, so yeah, small world. Wow. Uh, I know cool. another Canadian into the Civil yep. War, so very. I think we follow each other on Twitter, so I, I think I, I knew think you were a Canuck, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Man, we got four people, two Canadians, two Americans, <laughs> and the two Americans definitely are the two dumb ones, so, um... <laughs> And it's about Lincoln, and I'm talking strictly Lincoln, too. Um, so, Christian, before we dive into some of the content, how'd you end up going from Canada to working at the Lincoln Museum? Uh, that's probably too long a story for me to tell, um, but I uh, um, I got into history as an undergrad, decided I wanted to go to grad school for it. Um, I went to the University of Toronto at Mississauga. Oh, that's um, where I went, too. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> who is your u.s history prof <laughs> uh i didn't i didn't take a u.s history course there unfortunately i i was in classical i was in classical studies and archaeology are you kidding i'm i uh my focus was classics 
Uh, I did my undergraduate thesis on Cicero. I was going to go into Roman history. Oh, my God. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. And they talked me out of it because they said there was no jobs in it. Uh, of course, there's no jobs in U.S. history either, but they said, what would your second choice be? And I said, I'd like to specialize in the Civil War. Uh, and so I applied to a bunch of grad schools, and uh, I ended up uh, going to grad school in Alabama. And I got my master's and my Ph.D. there. And uh, I graduated the year uh, of the financial crash. And so jobs uh, were even tougher to come by that year than they've been. Um, and so I managed to get a job, uh, that year I was very lucky. I got a job as an editor for the papers, Abraham Lincoln, and they, um, stationed me in Washington, DC, where I did research at the national archives. Um, and then they transferred me out to their main office here in Springfield. And I worked there for a couple of years. And then I transitioned a couple of years ago into working directly for the museum and library, uh, as a historian. So, um, that's the, the long uh, geographic story. Um, otherwise, it's just my parents were obsessed with uh, the Civil War growing up, and, and they got me kind of hooked on it, and I didn't really have much choice. So that's why I ended up being a Canadian into the Civil War anyway. Wow. Very we, cool. We thought we found the one, and it turns out there are two. That's, that's uh, it's an amazing yeah. coincidence. Like, I don't know. If it sounds like we planned it, we definitely didn't. That was, that was <laughs> no. you got to see that big reveal or hear that big reveal live. Um, that you all, y'all are classmates essentially. Yeah. Alumni of UTM. That's, and it's yeah. not, I don't meet many alumni from there at all. I, I went there, I graduated in 2000 and I, I was home a couple of years ago and I drove onto the campus for the first time in years. And I didn't recognize the place at all. It's no, it's changed a lot. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's very cool. Hey, yeah, all right. Yep. <laughs> Man, that went way better than I thought I was going to go there with, like, with that bonding moment. <laughs> like, you're both from Canada along with tens of millions of people. And they're like, oh, no. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so when I went down, Christian, I saw you. You were presenting, you know, talking about kind of the impact of music on the Civil War. So how would you kind of end up um, studying that stuff and diving deep into that? Um, so yeah, my other big interest besides history was always music. I always, uh, you know, kind of dreamed that I'd end up being a, a music critic or something, even though I knew I could never actually pull that off. Uh, but I ended up going to grad school for Civil War history, like I said, and I was having a really hard time finding a dissertation topic. Um, and I tried a couple research projects that went okay, but um, they didn't really pan out. And you know, with the Civil War, you just assume kind of everything's been done, right? And so. Um, it really never occurred to me to put my two interests together. In fact, I, I was getting so frustrated with the Civil War that I, I left it for a little while um, and uh, uh, did a research paper once I started my doctorate on music. Like, it didn't occur to me that you could do both, right? So, like, I left the Civil War and did a paper on, like, reactions to Elvis Presley in Alabama in, like, the 1950s uh, and... And that went okay too, but it was very much outside of my, you know, suddenly I'm in the 20th century and I didn't feel completely comfortable doing that. And then it finally hit me that I could do both at the same time. And uh, originally I had this super ambitious idea that I was going to do uh, a study of like the relationship between music and warfare, like throughout American history. And my advisor down there, George Rabel, um, was very kind in that he let me figure out on my own that that was way too big and impractical to do. Uh, and I ended up realizing that, you know, the Civil War, not only, you know, was it kind of a subject that hadn't been written about very much, uh, music in the Civil War, um, particularly as a social history, right? I didn't write about specific songs. Uh, I did, you know, primary social and cultural research on like what people actually said about the music, what they did with the music, you know, tried to gauge which songs were actually popular. Um, and a lot of that hadn't been done. And I found out there was just tons of sources. So if anything, there was more, you know, I realized it wasn't just there's one book here. There's tons of books. And, and in some ways, I kind of set up my book to be kind of a start for other people to pick it up and continue on some of the themes that I found, you know, and, and continue where I left off. And so uh, once I realized that it was it was a fruitful avenue, I just kind of dove in. And um, I've uh, at least in terms of my research and writing, I've been kind of still going on about that ever since. So. Um, I, my, my book about it came out in 2012, uh, and it's, it's gone to paperback since then. And, 
Um, it's it's uh, it's a fun topic. People like to hear about it. So I, I you know, I do like you saw me do that speaking gig. I get you know I do speaking gigs about it and write little articles about it. And it's there's plenty more to say. So I know there's other folks out there working on it now too. So there's there's a small group of us all working on Civil War music together. It's our our little thing. What were some of the main themes that we would find in your book or that you found in your studies as you look at stuff, the Civil yeah, War music? So, yeah, so um, Civil War music, it, it kind of reflected the issues of the war, um, but it also helped shape the issues of the war. So, uh, you know, Civil War Americans used music um, as a way to kind of sort out the conflict, right? That was a really complicated war. It, it As historians, we kind of break it down to its component parts, but... It doesn't feel that way at the time, right? And so music was one of the key ways that people tried to understand the war. Um, but they also used music to kind of shape the war um, the way they wanted to. Both songwriters and average people, you know, people who weren't professional songwriters, when they would perform these songs, they would add their own lyrics and stuff. And that was all just kind of this process of, of trying to get across ideas. Um, and that's kind of the main thesis of the book is that I figured out what a powerful tool um, that music really was for 19th century Americans. It was way more influential in a lot of ways than, you know, newspapers or books or things like that. Cause you need to be able to read and, and everybody could sing. And when you pair a message to a melody um, it's easier to remember. Um, and also you can get away with things in music uh, that you can't get away with in other art forms. You could, um, kind of talk about issues like slavery and race a little more directly because music was seen as kind of culturally ephemeral. Uh, and uh, so that was kind of the crux of the book. And then, um, you know, I realized because we had all these sources, I could really dig into, you know, what was mu how was music functioning on the home front? How was it functioning in the armies? Um, how did African-Americans use music during the war? There's a whole story them, uh, there about them using music to express their desire for freedom um, and kind of prove their humanity and intelligence to white listeners. Um, and, and then just basic, and then how those songs continued to kind of resonate in our memory. And, you know, these songs have all come down to us that we there are all these civil war songs we all know about. And why, why is that more than say other American wars? Well, that, actually, when I saw you speak, I, I thought this was a great story. You know, you talk about there was a record store in Chicago. Am I correct on the location of that? Uh, yes, although it wouldn't have been a record store, right? But well, yeah, yeah you're correct <laughs> on that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the store in Chicago, you mind kind of explaining that and kind of the impact that that had on the Civil War? Yeah, I mean, you know, people have written about these things in bits and pieces before, but I kind of, you know, finding some of these things uh, surprised myself with um, some of the aspects of the war I really didn't know about. They end up being these, you know, music in the war, they end up being these really fascinating stories and, and um, kind of heroes for me, really, uh, were this music uh, uh, store and then later publisher uh, Root and Katie in Chicago, because uh, they basically proved my thesis for me. This is a, a music business that um, uh, largely due to the leadership of George Frederick Root, uh, George Frederick Root, I mispronounced his name, who's one of the most prominent songwriters in the Civil War. Um, he uh, is able to become extremely uh, influential and successful as a songwriter because he writes songs that relate directly to what's going on in the war. Um, and these songs very subtly um, shape the kind of political uh, view of the war. Um, and then he hires, song he's pretty, he's definitely an abolitionist uh, and a unionist, but he's much more subtle in his music. His biggest song was the Battle Cry of Freedom. Um, he also wrote uh, Just Before the Battle Mother and Tramp, 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 The Boys Are Marching. Um, but then he has these songwriters that he hires who are even more radical and even more overtly abolitionist. Um, and the most prominent of them is Henry Clay Work, who wrote um, Kingdom Coming. But uh, his, uh, uh, that was his first big hit. His biggest hit was uh, Marching Through Georgia. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great song, right? And yep. um, these songs are very, um, they're super successful. They're huge hits. Um, but I also think they're really influential because they become really popular in the armies. They become popular on the home front and their message is, uh, to varying degrees, very unionist, but also very abolitionist. 
um, and in, they can get across these kind of pro-emancipation ideas more than a lot of other, like I said before, a lot of other media, um, it would be taboo to talk so directly about abolitionism to such a broad audience, but they can get away with it because they're songwriters. Um, and it largely works. I mean, soldiers especially just fall in love with these songs. Um, and especially works music are just overtly anti-slavery. Um, and you don't see a lot of other things soldiers are embracing that are that, you know, they're not all reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, but they're all singing Marching Through Georgia and, and Kingdom Coming. Um, and John Brown's Body, which isn't from Root and Katie, but is probably the most popular song in the Union Army. It's about the most radical abolitionist, uh, at least immediately in the war period of them all. So. You know, after I heard you speak, I was thinking about this, like as far as music and what you can get away with, and I, and I was thinking about like it's still that way today, and it made me think back to like the first few years when I was teaching, and I might have like the radio on or something, and then there would be like a song that comes on that's like really inappropriate, but just plays on the radio, and you're just like, how do they get away with this? Yeah. Why is it? Do you, in your opinion, do you think like in music you can? get away with more than other mediums? Um, I think there's a slightly different reason for that now um, than there was then. Um, I think you can't get away with as much now, actually, as you, as you could then. One of the things I showed during that uh, talk was um, one of Henry Clayworth's songs um, was this piece called Babylon Has Fallen, which is the sequel to Kingdom Coming. And it's a song about a, an African-American regiment um, that goes into the South uh, to find their old master. And the cover image is a bunch of African-American soldiers aiming their guns at a fleeing Confederate officer, and they're obviously about to kill him. Um, I think if you were to have a popular album right now with a lot of sales that had a picture of a bunch of um, African-Americans about to shoot a military officer, um, that probably wouldn't go very well today. Um, but they could get away with it. Now, hey, he's a, he's, a, he's a military officer for an opposing side, but it's still a pretty radical image, and, it, and no one really batted an eye to it in the 19th century. And I think today we see music still, music still has this reputation as maybe, at least popular music, has this reputation as being kind of weightless and culturally ephemeral. And, and so, you know, we occasionally get panicked about things when there's an inappropriate song that becomes very popular or that people think is culturally inappropriate. Um, but that didn't really happen in the 19th century. Music was considered um, a completely kind of um, artless form, particularly non what we would today call classical music. You know, they just saw it as kind of these goofy songs and nobody paid them much attention. Um, and if they had political content, you know, it was usually in kind of a jokey way. Um, and so you could get away with it that way. That's how um, Root and Katie got away with some of their stuff because these songs about... African-American slave revolts and things like that, they're supposed to be funny, and so people just shrug them off. Um, so I think music, I think people don't take music, uh, a lot of times people don't take music very seriously, especially pop music, you know, simple melodies, um, you know, likable, memorable uh, lyrics, and so they just um, shrug it off, and they don't, they don't realize that, uh, you know, these messages are easy to understand, um, they're catchy, and, uh, you know, this is a way uh, to reach a mass audience. Um, uh, a lot more than other ways. And so if you can do it effectively, uh, you can have a real impact. Um, kind of shifting gears a little, um, going back to, you know, uh, what we, we do is talk Lincoln. What impact did music have on Lincoln? Um, uh, it's tough to say what impact music had on Lincoln. Lincoln was a huge music fan. Uh, in fact, um, one of Lincoln's friends who wrote about Lincoln's taste in music a lot, uh, another lawyer named Henry Clay Whitney, um, talked about Lincoln the way I just talked about, the way most people saw music. Lincoln loved music. Um, he liked all kinds of music. Um, uh, the idea we have today of kind of high and low culture um, was only really coming into, just coming into its own in the mid-19th century. Uh, and Lincoln clearly had no use for that idea. Um, so Lincoln would go to an opera one night and he would go home and listen to, you know, or he wouldn't listen to, but he would go home and sing or, uh, or you know, uh, find a place where he could hear, you know, goofy little joke songs 
you know, the next night. Uh, he really didn't. He was that way about all his, his culture. You know, he liked Shakespeare, but he also liked these, you know, goofy little comedies like uh, Our American Cousin, right? Um, <laughs> it, well, but I mean, that's, you know, that's why he was there. He'd seen yeah. that play before. Like, sure, that was sure. a play he liked. Mm-hmm. Um like, you know, I, I, I tell people, like, for Lincoln, I'm not talking about music anymore, but for Lincoln, going to see Our American Cousin was like me turning on, like, Anchorman. Like, it's a comedy that he was very familiar with that he had seen before. That was a, a play for him to relax to because mm-hmm. it was something he knew the beats, he knew the jokes. Um, I like that anyway. analogy right now. <laughs> so he would be a huge Ron Burgundy fan. <laughs> So, and we all know, you know, with you guys, you know, we all know Lincoln like like dumb jokes, right? And we all know Lincoln like dirty jokes. And uh, he he did with his music too, um, but then he could transition right into the other things. So Lincoln, but he was a real music lover, uh, his whole life. Um, uh, Lincoln himself, uh, in the papers we have from Lincoln, barely talks about music at all. Um, the only song he really talks about is is Dixie, and I'm you know we can talk about that later. Uh, but um, that's more circumstantial. That that just happens to be he gave a speech where he talks about Dixie. A lot of people confuse that and think that Lincoln was some huge fan of the song Dixie and it was his favorite song. Lincoln liked the song Dixie, but it just so happens that's what we have him making a speech about because of the war. But um, Lincoln, uh, all the, the, the reminiscences about Lincoln that William Herndon collected and and these other uh, books people wrote about Lincoln, they all uh, comment on Lincoln's love of music and how from a very early age, um, he, would, he would sing. He couldn't sing. Um, uh, uh, Herndon, in a letter, um, uh, responds to a friend who asked if Lincoln could sing, and he says, uh, could Lincoln sing? Could a jackass sing? Like he, you know, <laughs> Lincoln was apparently horrible at singing, but he loved music. He loved hearing it. Um, and that stayed true for his entire life. And when he's in Washington, one of the things he takes advantage of, along with going to the theater, like we said, is he takes advantage of all the opportunities he has in Washington to hear live music. Because in Springfield, he just that just wasn't something that was available to him that often. And so he's constantly going to the theater to hear music. The Marine Band is giving these concerts on the lawn of the White House. You know, he, and he attends a whole bunch of them. I mean, music was was really important to Lincoln. Um, and along with, you know, Lincoln was a lover of all kinds of art, um, uh, but music was probably right up there with reading for, for Lincoln and a, and a passion he really had. Mary or Jeremy, I've been hogging all the questions. Go ahead, Mary. Um, my questions have been answered about, um, like I had a question about Dixie, which was answered. So thank you for that. So Jeremy, if you've got anything. Yeah, I was, uh, I noticed that you had, um, an editorial, I guess it was in Time Magazine, about uh, the State Song of Maryland, which we actually chatted a little bit, probably, I don't know, uh, half a dozen episodes ago or so, when we talked about the assassination with a Marylander, um, Boothie Barn, our resident, not even resident. Dave our, Taylor, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, who's talked to us about um, the assassination. What, what was your take on the Maryland State Song? And Because uh, that has been in the news recently. Um, yeah, Maryland State Song is uh, Maryland by Maryland, right? And I guess I don't need to uh, go into much, go into a lot of detail here if you'd already talked about it in a previous episode, but it's, it's Maryland State Song. Um, it was one of the most popular patriotic anthems in the Confederacy, uh, and it is a blatantly uh, secessionist, uh, anti-Union, uh, anti-Lincoln um, song. Uh, it references the northern scum. Uh, it references the despot's heel, uh, the despot being Lincoln. Um, and uh, it becomes Maryland's state song. Um, I'm going to forget when. It's in the 20th. Does it, isn't it all the way into the 20th century before it becomes Maryland's state song? Uh, and uh, it um, is part of um, these issues of memory in the Civil War and the Lost Cause, uh, this narrative that's created in the South um, after the war that removes slavery as an issue in the war um, and makes turns the South into a victim of Northern aggression, hence the, the War of Northern Aggression, as it's sometimes called. Um, and uh, uh, these border states especially, Kentucky and Maryland and to a certain extent Missouri, 
um, recast themselves as Confederate states after the war. Uh, and Maryland goes all in and adopts a blatantly secessionist uh, anti-union song as their state song. And um, recently, there have been several movements in the state legislature to uh, have it changed, um, which seems entirely appropriate to me. We're, we're um, focusing right now on Confederate monuments, uh, and when rightly so, um, but, uh, you know, this song is an egregious example of uh, this kind of false memory of the Civil War. Uh, and um, it looks like, I haven't uh, seen an update on the story in a few weeks, but it looks like when I wrote that article, that was, what, two years ago was the last time they tried it? Um, uh, it looked, and it didn't take that time. It looks like this time it might. So, um, and uh, Maryland, this, there's all kinds of uh, issues like this, you know, um, that came about around that same period, you know, when I was at Alabama working on the book, um, uh, Ole Miss banned uh, Dixie from being played at their football games um, for similar reasons. Um, so, you know, these, we're still grappling with these issues and, and music is a, is a key component of that. Um, I, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe about modern music and how it relates to Civil War music. It feels like... Um, folk music is kind of making a little bit of a, I mean, it's obviously always been there and it's always kind of been woven into the fabric of Americana, uh, but it feels like folk music is kind of making a little bit of a comeback um, at the mainstream level, um, or maybe that's just because I enjoy listening to folk, you know, neo-folk sure. or whatever you want to call it. Uh, do you see any of those uh, kind of themes coming back and are there any, um, you know, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of musicians out there who literally try to you know just play civil war songs and they're great right. and, and we can definitely talk about some of those i know mary you uh listen to to a handful of those groups do you see any um uh, christian do you see any um civil war kind of threads or themes in in new folk music um sure uh i'm probably not as into the movement as uh as maybe mary is um what I, what I can say, uh, kind of going at it broadly, is the folk movement, um, especially in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, really romanticized that music. Um, you know, uh, Dylan, one of the first things Dylan did um, when he started to get into folk music is he went to the New York Public Library um, and he started reading uh, letters from Civil War soldiers, and that uh, kind of inspired him. Um, and he tried to kind of take on that persona in some of his songs. The irony of that is that these songs, these Civil War songs that um, kind of get wrapped up in all this, they're, they're not folk songs at all. They're absolutely commercial. Um, you know, folk songs are songs that are passed down from generation to generation. I mean, they might be folk songs, I guess, now, because they largely exist in our memory. But when they were released, they were songs designed to, to sell money or to, to sell copies and make money. Um, you know, Dixie, uh, if you believe Daniel Decatur Emmett, I mean, Dixie was written in a night because they needed it for a stage show. And he just threw together a bunch of melodies and lyrics that he kind of remembered. And, you know, that's like just kind of a quick, you know, like like a songwriter would do today trying to write a hip hop song at the spur of the moment. Um, so these songs have taken on folk qualities over the last, you know, 150 years. Um, but they were absolutely commercial properties when they were created, uh, for the most part. There, there are um, exceptions. John Brown's Body was a genuine folk song created by soldiers, and it spread through the army. But then it became a commodity. Then they tried to sell copies of it, and, um, and it gets transformed into the Battle of the Republic and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's not really uh, commercialism, but it's still uh, appropriating it. Um, and so... Um, you know, there's there's a, a a tendency to consider anything from the 19th century as somehow like more artistically pure or as part of a different tradition, and and that's not always really the case. They were just as into buying stuff uh, as as we were, and people fretted about it back then. The the same thing is today, where people fret that you know pop songs are are too simple or they're they're too preoccupied with you know. Um, things that people find objectionable. They, they had all those same concerns in the 1860s. There's all these uh, music critics who are all, you know, upset that these songs are all uh, too dumbed down or they're too preoccupied with love or they're too preoccupied with race. 
um, or you know, uh, African Americans and things like that. So that does, I don't know if that that probably doesn't really answer your question. But, no, it does. Um, no, it, <laughs> it was the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> no, I mean, and I think that that's you know maybe that's kind of a theme throughout history too. What we think of as folk music, you know, isn't always that. And you know, I think even folk, you know, the the kind of folk resurgence, there there are they certainly play some of those some of those staples, um, but then also kind of have their own stuff as well. Um, and let's not forget that Battle Hymn of the Republic is also was also then um, evolved into Glory, Glory, Man United. We can't forget that. <laughs> amazing, amazing tune. Yeah, that song went global, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, across the pond, it's pretty cool. Uh, Mary, did you, I don't know if you had any questions about Civil War music, or you could just tell the story about marching <laughs> through Georgia that you shared with us earlier in the week. Oh, yeah, I was... Um... So I went out for dinner on Friday night and we were driving to a town about 15 minutes outside of Godrich and uh, go through the country. And then all of a sudden, like I see this orange bus and I just like, what the hell is that? And uh, Jer, my partner was like, oh yeah, that's that General Lee bus. I thought I told you about that, but there was this General Lee bus um, painted like bright orange sitting in someone's driveway. And then on the way back we passed it again except i had marching through georgia playing (laughs) and it was this version of the song that is uh pretty sure it's got guitars it's like very modern version of it starts off really slow like it starts off with the kind of the the lament and then it gets into the fast march but that was playing and i thought that was kind of funny when when we drove by it and i had marching through georgia blaring in the car was it the one from divided united yes that's the one so when you say it was a General Lee bus, like was it like, like it looked like the General Lee from the Dukes of Hazard, or like it yeah. had a big like Robert E. Lee on the side? No, it's painted bright orange, and it says like, it's got the zero one and then General Lee painted on it. So some yeah, Dukes of Hazard. Which is wow. amazing because, I know someone who used to have, that exact same thing. It was, <laughs> one of the shorter buses that they converted into a party bus. And he sold it, so I don't know if he sold it from here. Like I don't know if this is another like kismet paths crossing story. This is a gigantic full size school bus. Okay, so this was a half size school bus. So there are two generally buses out there. There's also somebody in my town that has Dixie as their car horn. That the the (laughs) generally bus that I had that had that had it played general it played Dixie. Because uh, of that's what the Dukes of Hazard horn played, right? Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that's the Dukes of Hazard thing, and it show. I mean, you know, um, the the Lost Cause was super effective. I mean, like that that narrative went global, and uh, you know, it's uh, there. I that I I can also attest to people in Canada who um, definitely had a like distinctly pro-Southern view of the Civil War. Uh, and that, you know, slavery wasn't really part of that story for them. I've run into uh, a few of those people as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me, um, you know, just how powerful that story was and just how powerful, like the overall story of the civil war is like the fact that, you know, I mean, people don't obsess about the American revolution in other countries. People don't reenact battles from, you know, the Korean war. Um, you know, like people are just obsessed with the Civil War. It's just got this great story, um, some of which, you know, we built up over uh, Mark Grimsley, the, the historian of Ohio State, calls it the American Iliad, right? It's, it's, it's like Homer's, uh, Homer's Iliad, where it's this creation myth America has that um, has kind of gotten this narrative built around it. So it reads like a story. Um, and, and, you know, I would say about 80% of that story, just the baseline story is true. It has all this kind of high drama in it, um, that makes it appealing to people. It's, it's just amazing that, I mean, that's why you can manage to somehow end up in a situation where you've got four people in a Lincoln podcast and two of them are from Canada, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) so if, if, uh, so Christian, if you were, um, or if one of our listeners was just hoping to get into, Civil War era music, or kind of wanted to take a take a couple steps down that path. What would what, what would you start your playlist with if you were uh, if you could talk about a couple a couple tunes, a couple numbers, and maybe a few sentences about why why you would pick those for your playlist? Uh, so like you want me to do this based on like historical importance or you know, like okay, so there's <laughs> there's a very lost art of the mixtape, right? 
Uh, yeah. So back back in the '90s, that was like something that was fairly romantic if you were if you had a love interest to create a mixtape. Did you if create you made, a mixtape for a girlfriend? I've, yeah, I made many a mixtape. Yeah. I, I even transitioned to mixed CDs and even into mixed playlists. I Ooh. gave my wife a mixtape, and she went out with me like a week later. See? So, and now okay. we're married. Yeah. Okay. So, Christian, you're familiar with you. the art form. Now, if you put the top, if you put your ten favorite songs on that mixtape, that would have been a lousy mixtape. If you put like these are the ten songs I think she's gonna like the most, also probably lousy. You got to mix that up, right? You, you start usually, you know, you start with some power. You bring in a ballad. You got to mix yeah. it up. So, like, pretend like you're making the Civil War, the Battle Hymn mixtape for a novice uh, civil war music person and there you go that's my task for you what, what, what's on it and why you watch a lot of high fidelity haven't you? i love that movie <laughs> <laughs> i was trying to quote it and i, I abandoned it very shortly well, i after. could tell you were going for it there yeah uh, the chicago movie too right yep, so, indeed it is. Um, yeah uh oh i don't know i've you know believe it or not i've never actually tried to make a uh civil war playlist uh which i guess you know um yeah as a, as a glaring omission on my part i've made them to give talks but never like to listen to all the way through which is probably because i don't you know people assume because i write about this stuff that like it's all i listen to right and like it's you know that's not true although i do sprinkle it in there um Please tell me so, you have like two live crew going in your car right now, <laughs> or Dr. Dre's The Chronic. <laughs> well, the Chronic, actually, that's a great album. Yeah, and uh, I was listening to Yeezus earlier today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I uh, I like all kinds of music, but um, um, I would say, uh, so we want music from the Civil War. So like the night they drove old Dixie down, that doesn't qualify. No, right? no. Uh, okay. Um, I'm a big, big fan of um, the soundtrack to the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, that was my gateway to, to Civil War music when I was a kid, because uh, I was pretty young when that came out, uh, although I guess we all were. Um, and uh, I, I got that soundtrack and listened to it to death. Um, and uh, I can't sequence this for you. I'd have to think about it more to sequence it for you. But mm -hmm. probably the like maybe the closer on that mixtape uh, would be um, Jacqueline Schwab's really slow rendition of the Battle Cry of Freedom uh, on that uh, on that soundtrack. It's absolutely great. Um, every time I hear it, it makes me want to cry. Uh, it's it's just fabulous. Um, Bobby Horton, who I've actually gotten to know a little bit uh, through the book, he blurbed the back of the book, and I, I did a, uh, an appearance with him uh, in Livingston, Alabama, at the University of West Alabama. Um, uh, he does a lot of music for Ken Burns. He does an acoustic version of Dixie on that soundtrack that's absolutely fabulous, uh, that I love. Um, there is an African-American chorus that does the Battle Hymn of the Republic on that soundtrack. Uh, which I absolutely love. Um, so those would all make my my mixtape. Um, uh, I uh, there is a ver a live version of Dixie. Uh, obviously, a complicated song to endorse. So I'm not in any way endorsing that people listen to Dixie for fun uh, or endorsing the lyrics of Dixie. But if you were to listen to Dixie. Uh, Bob Dylan does a live version that you can get off of iTunes in which I believe he's drunk because you can barely understand what he's saying in it. Uh, which is probably the course. appropriate way to do Dixie at this point. Um, and so uh, that would certainly make, uh, make my list. Um, you got to put an American Trilogy by Elvis Presley on that list, which I write about in the book, uh, which is, you know, Elvis's combination of the battle hymn Dixie and uh, and what he thinks is a is a slave spiritual, all my trials, but actually uh, came around later. Uh, is just fabulous. He it he he like all, most of Elvis's songs, he took it from another songwriter. Uh, Mickey Newberry originally did it, but Elvis's version was was in my opinion far better. Um, and I'll give a shout out to United or to uh, Dividing United. Um, uh, the uh, Oh, uh, what's the what's the uh, Loretta Lynn song on it? What's the title of that song? Oh, I was just listening to it yesterday, and I can't. It's the first song on the album, right? Uh, yeah. That's a great song. Uh, it's like take take your gun and go, John, isn't that? Yeah, I think so. 
that's great. Um, I really like that version of Marching Through Georgia mm -hmm. on that. Um, there is a version uh, of, a, of a, a really lesser known song um, called, uh, is it Charleston Has Fallen or is it Sumter Has Fallen? And they basically sing it like a bunch of drunken soldiers. Yeah, Charleston is falling. Charleston is falling. Yeah. And you can hear them like breaking bottles in the background and stuff. It's great. Um, and then the other really good song on that album that I really like is um, the version of Just Before the Battle Mother, uh, where, um, and again, I can't remember any of these performers' names. I'm, I'm, you're, you're catching me after nine. I've got a six-year-old kid, so I'm always asleep early. Uh, the, uh, the, he combines the actual song, which is this George Frederick Root song about how all these soldiers were thinking of their mothers and were pious and were loyal to the Union, um, and then he pairs it with these lyrics and he changes the tone of his voice to this other version, this parody version of the song, which is about how what the soldier's thinking about but going into battle is how he doesn't want to die and he's going to run away. And that, um, you know, the, the best thing to do when you're in a battle uh, is to find a way to not get killed, not to, you know, be, uh, be loyal and, and pious. Gives you that good duality of the two kinds of ways soldiers think about this stuff. So uh, I don't think that was 10, but that was pretty close. That's pretty so, good. So just to kind of fill in head. that, uh, <laughs> the, just before the battle song, that was Steve Earle and Dirk Powell. Yeah. Uh, it's just great. Oh, that's right. He doesn't modify his voice. There's two of them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> He's really good at it. He has a whole nother alter ego. Um, the marching through Georgia. I, for somehow I was not familiar with this, uh, divided and united and part of my ulterior motive to asking you that earlier question about folk music is because i kind of listen to some of these some of those mm -hmm. groups that are part of that folk revival and two of those songs marching through georgia on this uh record is by old crow medicine show who's uh, oh yeah a terrific yeah, right. band. Yeah. yeah i yeah. Uh, actually saw them along with shovels and rope who were the band that did fall of charleston yeah uh, i saw them both at the same music festival in january uh, of this year which was they're both very, 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 um, very good shows. Um, Old Crow does a lot of uh, Civil War type songs. They got a song called Carry Me Back to Virginia mm -hmm. um, and some other stuff that they do, which I'm not sure if they're actual Civil War songs, but certainly Carry Me Back to Virginia, obviously, is very much mm -hmm. uh, at least inspired by the Civil War. Um, Chris Stapleton's on there, a couple other uh, pretty yeah. fairly well-known names, T-Bone Burnett. Um, so yeah, that's probably one to check out. So it looks like somebody oh, yeah. kind of made one for you. Um, and, uh, yeah, Loretta Lynn's song is take your gun and go, uh, John. Oh, and Dolly Parton does listen to the mockingbird, right? On that. Um, I don't know if I see that. Or is that off something else? That might be off something else. So. That's a good, that's a, just predates the civil war, but it was a big hit in the civil war. And that's a, that's a good version too. But anyway. Um, a, uh, this was a long time ago when we did this episode, but we did an episode where we tried to like, uh, Lincoln as our inspiration of like current contemporary songs or artists that reminded us of Lincoln. So I'm going to go, my next question is going to kind of go down that route. If Lincoln was alive in 2018, you know, or within, let's say the last 50 years, what artist do you think would appeal to Lincoln? <laughs> Gee, I don't know. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess I'd like to think that Lincoln would be into uh, like older country music because uh, that kind of would fit with kind of maybe what he was used to and like some of this like, like you know, this folk revival stuff that would fit in his wheelhouse. I mean, so I didn't bring up, we talked about Lincoln earlier, but Lincoln's tastes weren't entirely, like, um, unproblematic, if that's a word. Like, Lincoln also was really into minstrel music. Uh, and minstrel music is, is extremely racially problematic. It's a really racist form of music. Um, it was the first strictly American kind of music, and the whole premise of the music is uh, to make fun of the supposed, you know, uh, mental and cultural inferiority of African-Americans and Lincoln loved that kind of music. Um, so I don't know if there's really a modern, uh, you know, uh, uh, comparative thing uh, for that. Don't mean to bring everybody down by <laughs> with that, but, um, but he liked, he liked upbeat songs. And that's what, what I was trying to get to by that is minstrelsy is racially problematic, but the songs are really upbeat and jaunty and they're 
funny, uh, which is, I think, what he liked about it. Um, and, um, you know, so any kind of music that fits that mold, you know, again, he he had these completely flexible tastes. So, like, if you take Lincoln out of the 19th century and you put him now, maybe this is the best answer I can give. Lincoln clearly just liked anything that had, like, a decent rhythm that, like, tickled his funny bone um, or, you know, made him smile. Um, he also did, though, like, these really depressing, like, sentimental ballads. Um, his favorite song was apparently this song called 20 Years Ago, which is this really nostalgic song about this guy who goes back to his home after 20 years um, and everything's changed and his friends have died and he's remembering... This is really common in the 19th century, these song, these nostalgic songs. And Lincoln was really into them. Um, uh, so again, I don't know if that would be like Johnny Cash or something. These like slow, sad numbers, you know, Hank Williams. Um, so I don't know, that was kind of a rambling answer, but that was the best I could do. I, I liked it because I also like to think that he would like Johnny Cash. I will say just the other day... And you know, I almost looked it up again. I was going to write it down before I talked to you guys tonight. Um, I'm a I'm a uh, uh, unapologetically big uh, U2 fan, but even I recognize that U2 is not what they once were. And uh, I haven't I've yet to listen to their new song or their new album, Songs of Experience. But there's a song on it that mentions Lincoln, and somebody tweeted out the lyrics, and they're terrible. <laughs> Bono did a terrible job of using Lincoln. He's, it's a song about how democracy's in trouble and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, which is noble of Bono to write a song about. But he basically has like it's some line that like Lincoln's basically crying about what's happened to his country or something, and it just doesn't play well at all. So uh, you mentioned Lincoln in popular culture right now. That's a uh, a not so great example of like my most recent encounter with Lincoln in in pop culture. Man, that must have been tough for you as a U2 fan seeing that. Well, you know, I'm I'm well aware of the fact that uh, although I like U2's music, uh, Bono is entirely capable of of uh, doing embarrassing things and writing really bad corny lyrics. So <laughs> that is true. Nothing new there. Mary, do you? I feel like we're asking all the questions here. No, oh, no, it's been wonderful. Like all, I was going to actually ask which songs he, you would put on a playlist as well. Um, I, mine was more worded like, "What are your top three favorite Civil War era songs?" Probably a more what succinctly and efficiently worded question. <laughs> what are yours, Mary? Mine, uh, "Marching Through Georgia," yeah. and. Um, it's not Civil War, but um, a show can farewell. I just, yeah, I just associate it with that. And then um, Battle Cry of Freedom. Uh, good choices. I have a love-hate relationship with a show can farewell because I love it. And I have actually put that song on a playlist. Mm -hmm. But now that I like have a side gig as a guy who goes around and talks about Civil War music to people, I'm constantly telling people that that song is not from the Civil War because everybody thinks it is. Yeah, and, and I... Ken Burns for that. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> and then I came across a song. It's a modern song, and it's called Chickamauga, and it's written by this guy named Willie T. Taylor, and he sings it as well. And it is this beautiful, haunting song about a soldier who dies at Chickamauga. Someone and, else has recommended that song, and, you know, I've never... Um, I've never looked into it, so I, I definitely will now that you've said that. Yeah. It's beautiful. I found it. I tweeted it out on Saturday after I found it because I was actually making a playlist and putting Civil War songs on it for this road trip I'm taking this weekend. Um, but it is like, it made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> it's very sad and haunting, but it was nice to, it was also nice to see a song written about that battle as well because, you know, there's songs about Antietam and, and Gettysburg, but just one about Chickamauga, which is one that doesn't get as much attention as it, as it should, but it was still such a beautiful song. Well, and, and I don't want to be a downer again, but, you know, <laughs> I also always appreciate anything related to the Civil War that really emphasizes the tragedy of it and the huge yep. cost of it. I find that with Civil War, especially pop culture Civil War, um, I, I call it, I use, I well, I still have a blog, I just haven't written for a while, called Civil War Pop, where I look at, I looked at 
different pieces of, of popular culture mm-hmm. of the Civil War. And um, I always called it the, uh, the football analyst school of Civil War history, where there's this kind of idea about there about the Civil War that it was this conflict where these generals staged these chess games with each other. Um, and all, we're going to talk about the politics of the war, and we're going to talk about what the generals did, but all of that is like completely bloodless, and we forget that this was an enormous, catastrophic human tragedy. Um, and uh, you know, part of my motivation for writing about music is I, I like the idea of something beautiful coming out of that, right? That you get these songs that still have this resonance, and um, but you know, we we can't we can't forget, and and you know. The Civil, like I said, the Civil War is a neat story, but we can't forget in that neat story that, that it's, it's a really horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people say, oh, I wish I could go back and live in the Civil War. No, you do not wish you could go back and live in the Civil War. That would have been horrifying, and you probably would be dead. So, you know, if you were a soldier, at least. So, you know, this is... Um, I really appreciate pop culture that taps into that. So, No, I, you know, you're bringing up that point, you know, kind of the, the sadder music that gets that across. Um... You know, I happen to teach a class where we interview a lot of veterans. And when it comes to editing, to me, always like working with the kids and doing some editing myself, I always enjoy kind of adding, this doesn't really relate to Civil War music, but putting in that, you know, that somber, sad music that really gets that across. And and I agree with you 100%. That, that is often forgotten a lot, especially with the Civil War, because we're so far removed and there's no more living veterans to really get that story across and there's so much more i don't know if you want to call it sexier stuff to, to focus in on um maybe that was a poor choice of word there um but <laughs> so no i agree I, i'm glad that you brought that up and it is nice to have songs or a great medium to use to remind somebody just you know how devastating it was for a soldier in the civil war yeah that's what this chickamauga song does it is like he talks about you know how bad the battle was talks about like dying basically and how he's not ever going to see his love of his life again. Like it was very like just told the tragedy of the battle of the war of this soldier's life. Now it's a Sullivan Baloo letter. Yeah. Yeah. Which is at the Lincoln presidential library, by the way, that's where Burns found that. Oh, excellent. Awesome. I, I think that that's an important part of, um, Civil War music also, because I think you kind of lose that as you uh, go through American history, at least. Like, the World War I songs are all about, like, you know, going out and having a jolly good adventure. Like, there's not a whole lot of uh, trench warfare songs or losing your loved one songs. Not to say there aren't any, um, but, like, Let's Go Hunting the Hun is kind of like the song that a lot of people identify with. And uh, World War II, I think, it gets kind of identified with... Um, a much more kind of sugar-coated version of warfare, mm-hmm. um, do-your-part kind of um, stuff. And uh, like Nick, I go to a lot of his veteran events, and they, they play a lot of 40s-era music, and very rarely is it about, you know, losing lo- losing comrades and um, sacrifice. It's a, a lot of morale booster, uh, which obviously served its purpose. And then, of course, when you get into the Vietnam-era songs, um, the protest is there, but like very right. rarely do you get the soldier perspective, um, like you do in the folk the folk feel of, of Civil War songs. So I think it's kind of unique in American history in that regard. Um, well, yeah, the Civil War. Um, most of the popular songs of the Civil War uh, don't convey that. They're they're patriotic songs. These are songs that the soldiers really embraced to get motivation for to keep fighting. Um, but um, you know, there's no censorship in this. Like, now, if you were to put out a song, um, I don't know. Well, like, a good example of a, of a song, I guess, would be, like, the, the Unknown Soldier by The Doors, right? Is a song about a soldier mm-hmm. getting killed. Um, that's a popular song. Um, but that's, like, a, you know, that's not a huge hit or anything. But, like, in the Civil War, you do get these handful of songs that appear that are really nasty and are dealing with death. Like, the, the one most people have heard of would be The Vacant Chair, right? I mean... This is a song yeah. meant for the home front about, you know, what happens if daddy dies, right? And, I mean, it's, it's really not um, something you see a lot of um, in modern warfare is, is these kind of songs and them becoming popular. Um, uh, the uh, Tenting Tonight on the Old Campground is another example, too, which really I found wasn't very popular during the Civil War, but it's really popular with veterans. 
And so again, like you mentioned, the kind of music veterans listen to, like the veterans, when they start having reunions in the 1880s and the 1890s, they're gathering around and they're singing that song, and that song is about them dying. Um, and so it's it's a different attitude, um, I think. Um, and I think the soldiers, when they do start having their reunions, they certainly romanticize elements of the war. Um, or the veterans do that with the Civil War, but they, they don't seem themselves to ever lose touch with the fact that they went through this extremely traumatic event. And, and I think that's true for, I don't think that's any different for veterans today, by the way. I think that would certainly be true of the World War II generation of, and certainly of Vietnam veterans. Um, so Civil War soldiers in that sense were um, maybe more like to modern. Um, but uh, they also went through the same kind of thing that um, particularly World War I veterans did, where, where Civil War soldiers didn't really talk about the war for the first 10 or 15 years after the war. Most of them, they didn't want to have reunions. They didn't want to sing those songs again, especially Southerners. Southerners just, like, stopped singing Dixie and the Bunny Boo Flag and those songs. They didn't want to be reminded of this, this traumatic experience they went through. And it's only later that they're able to kind of come to terms with it. So. All right. Um, so... <laughs> We appreciate that kind of tour through Civil War music. You have a very unique perspective on that, um, being like the, the, I guess, the, the expert or an expert on it. Uh, again, if you're looking for the book, that's Battle Hymns. Uh, the, uh, lost my notes. What is it? The Power and Popularity. The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War. I yeah. had it too. Um, on Amazon, yeah. <laughs> so check the book out for sure. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. But before we go, we, of course, have our weekly feature, This Week in Lincoln. And when we have guests on, we invite them to supply their favorite example of Lincoln popping up in a way that is unexpected, not in the traditional historic context. So, uh, Christian, we ask you to bring us uh, This Week in Lincoln this week. So what do you have for us? Uh, well, I already told you that part of the reason I became a Civil War historian is because my uh, parents were obsessed with the Civil War and kind of brainwashed me um my mother was obsessed with star trek and so i spent uh most of my childhood uh watching episodes of the original series of star trek and in its waning days near the end of the third season uh they did an episode which i still remember the title of the savage curtain uh where lincoln appears um the uh the enterprise is uh, intercepted uh, on its, uh, you know, near some planet by this uh, cheesy-looking guy made of rocks. Uh, and he sends Lincoln. Lincoln floats towards the Enterprise in space, sitting in a chair, just like in the Lincoln Memorial. And he tells them to come down to the... Or he beams on board the Enterprise, first of all. And because uh, he's Lincoln, he's totally cool with it. He's just, you know, hmm, this is an interesting, you know... <laughs> Uh, and he kind of wanders around the Enterprise. Uh, he meets Uhura, and he calls her a negress. Oh, you're a charming negress. Um, and uh, then he feels bad that he called her that because he thinks it's a racial slur, uh, which is kind of an interesting piece of, of racial politics in the episode in an otherwise pretty stupid, uh, <laughs> lightweight episode. Uh, but he's Kirk's idol because, of course, he is, right? And, um, and, of course, everybody on the ship knows who Lincoln is. Spock reveres Lincoln, you know, Lincoln by uh, Star Trek's what, the 23rd century, I think, you know, Lincoln has become a like galactic figure of, you know, uh, he, he represents, you know, the earth itself, basically he represents humans, not just the United States. And of course, all of Star Trek, you know, I don't want to go too deep, but like, you know, the Federation of Planets is just the United States, you know, expanded into the into the galaxy right that's that's kind of the message behind star trek it's progressive message so anyway then they go to this planet and they have to fight the they have the greatest historical heroes on their side which is lincoln and the guy who founds vulcan society and they have to fight the greatest villains of all time which is genghis khan a bunch of other people they made up and lincoln ends up getting killed and kirk gets all upset and then kirk and spock beat everybody up and they beam away and that's the way the episode ends but it's uh it was probably one of the first encounters I ever had with Lincoln was seeing him in that episode. I think it won an Emmy for greatest episode ever. <laughs> I think I think every year the Emmys like give it another Emmy for being so great. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happens. 
<laughs> All right, well, that is an excellent, excellent addition to our catalog of This Week in Lincoln. Um, so we'll definitely uh, try to treat out a picture or a YouTube link or something to that gem. It's on Netflix, so yeah. There you go, uh, to that gem of Americana. So Christian, once again, thank you for taking time out of your evening to enlighten us about the music of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Sure, thanks for having me on. I hope I didn't say anything stupid. Oh, not at all. No, it's <laughs> awesome. That's why I'm on the show is to yeah, do that. Yeah, so. we've, got, we've, got, we've got somebody who's, who's, who's that's their sole, sole job. Uh, so anyway, thank you again for coming on. Uh, and for Mary and for Nick, I am Jeremy. Thank you for turning in once again this week to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast. And just remember to keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week. <laughs>